Greetings, Race Community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Kimberly Russell, who serves as Vice President for University Advancement at Texas Women's University. Welcome, Kimberly. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, as we were just catching up on briefly before we went live, uh, you've got a very uh, unique perspective to bring to the Rays uh, podcast, given the institutions that you've worked with in the past and some of the unique areas of focus. But before we get to all of that, I want to better understand your own higher education journey. So take me back to high school. Who was that, Kimberly? Where was she? And what led her to UT at Tyler? (laughs) Well, I grew up in East Texas. I finished high school in Longview, Texas. And so I wanted to stay close to home. It was actually the most affordable option. So UT Tyler was the pathway. Right before I went to UT Tyler, though, I did do my first two years at a place called Letourneau University, which is also on my resume. It was one of my first uh, jobs in higher education and in university advancement. So that's where I learned the whole profession. Was Wait, tell me more about that. How, how'd you get uh, exposure to the profession there? Well, it was great. So I was working on my doctoral degree at University of North Texas, and I took a class on resource development. And in that class was the vice president for student affairs at the time at Laterna University. Um, And so I met him for the first time and learned about what it meant to fundraise for a a university. And so uh, one thing led to another and I ended up doing an internship with them and then establishing their office of uh, corporate and foundation relations. So that was my very first job in higher education and I absolutely loved it. I spent five years working with primarily the president and the vice president and then faculty members who were involved in engineering programs, either biomedical, welding engineering, uh, mechanical and electrical engineering uh, to to receive their first uh, grants, external grants from uh, uh, state and federal agencies as well as private foundations. Well, it sounds like the decision to attend North Texas was pretty life-changing and and rarely do people actually kind of get a job by way of classroom instruction. I mean, that's pretty, pretty direct. (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty crazy. And I had absolutely no idea. It was just happenstance. And so, um, and really happenstance into that particular course, wasn't even sure uh, what the course was about. And so uh, it was really my, my first connection to advancement work. And so then you are very early in your career without much experience tasked with standing up a corporate and foundation uh, relations program, um, which is not the most intuitive thing to do. So you must have had some good mentorship or guidance or partnership to, to be able to pull that off. I did. I did. I worked for a vice president who had quite a few years of experience and a president, but a, a, a individual by the name of Bud Austin, who was president at the time. He, he was president. I mean, the is there a more Texas name than Bud Austin? Are you <laughs> well, that's true. He was my first mentor, actually, and did just a phenomenal job uh, taking a very small institution with less than a thousand students to about four thousand students by the time he left. We did our first uh, campaign. Uh, it was like a $26 million campaign for a new engineering facility and a couple of other facilities on the campus. And so it was, it was, it was a great first uh, experience. 
really had a, an enjoyable time there. And I think, you know, to look, to work with a president, and I wasn't familiar with Bud until just now, but <laughs> to, to be a part of a growth story, you know, there aren't that many growth stories in higher education. It's a mature market. You know, if anything, there are, uh, you know, fewer institutions, you know, kind of one by one as the years go on. But but then you hear these occasional stories where somebody takes an institution from 1,000 to 4,000. And it it just sounds like so counter to some of the narrative that we hear right now. What stood out to you about either the leadership or the vision or the game plan? Where did those kids come from? What were they doing otherwise? I mean, I'm just curious, like how you were able to pull that off as a team. Yeah, it, it was a really unusual institution. So it was a small private um, with a Christian focus. But it, it really was national in perspective in that they had programs like uh, the avia- an aviation program, aeronautical sciences. So they taught people how to become pilots first, not just for commercial, but to, be, to become missionaries in other countries. Um, it, so they had sort of a global perspective. And so students came from really across the country to train there. It, it was a small private, felt like a liberal arts college, but it was STEM focused. It was engineering focused. And that's what made it different. Very yeah. cool. And then later they added uh, graduate school, became a university and uh, all of that. So. And then tell me about the opportunity to join Tyler Junior College. Yeah. You had a very unique run there and that, you know, getting beyond 15 years in any institution is increasingly rare in this, in this sector. And so you wouldn't have done that if you didn't really believe in the mission and, and, and have some real success there. So tell me about how the opportunity surfaced, where you started, uh, and then kind of what stood out about that um, part of your career. So through a lot of my community service work in Longview, I had an opportunity to serve on many different boards, even, you know, early in my career and met the president of Kilgore College. Uh, His name was his name is Bill Hulda. He uh, had heard about the position that was that was becoming available in Tyler at Tyler Junior College. And I really never thought about working at a two year institution. This was my first, you know, foray into uh, university advancement. I really liked it. Um, you know, so I wasn't really sure what to, you know, what to do with that information, but eventually he convinced me, Hey, you know, you really need to look at this. Tyler junior college is really different when it comes to two-year institutions. And so I did. And I met, uh, another mentor, uh, Bill Crow, who was the president at the time. Um, and you know, it was, it, it was just a phenomenal experience. Uh, so Tyler is a little bit different than most community colleges in that it's not a, a you know, a, a taking in a super large area district. They have about 12,000 students, primarily focused in the, on the East Texas region, but it felt like a, uh, a four-year institution in a, in a little two-year nutshell. Um, the, it, 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 it encompassed all kinds of sports activities, uh, had an incredible performing arts program, um, marching band, a lot of music talent there. And so we had an opportunity, which was, which was really cool to build, you know, from the bottom up. Our, our little foundation was worth maybe $5 million. And uh, the person who had been in charge of that, his name was Pinky Baker, uh, a long time. Uh, Pinky Baker. I mean, Pinky you've Baker. got the best. I know. The best names of people you've worked with. 
Yeah. Well, he, his family was from the, the region and he is the one who founded that, that foundation at that college back in the, I don't know, probably came to life in the early eighties. And so I had that strong foundation and we were able to just, you know, begin to hire um, the frontline development officers. We developed a really robust alumni program, which is unusual for a right. two-year institution. And so, and then, you know, uh, being from the region, kind of getting really involved in the, the Tyler and East Texas community, had an opportunity to really grow that foundation into mm, just over 50 million before I left. And today it, that foundation is worth now just over a hundred million. So they, they really have uh, done well. And so my question is when you arrive in that context, there's not a mature history and, you know, decades of data that you can mine probably to just start building the giving pyramid. And, and, and my understanding is oftentimes in the two-year context, actually the corporate and foundation intersection can be really important. Um, and so, you know, just tell me about like, where did you start? I mean, how, how do you even decide who your constituency is um, in that context where it might not just be pull me the list of alumni and let's sort them by, you know, wealth and start chasing people down. And so where do you start? So we really started with our foundation board and and that board was large enough. There were about 30 to 35 individuals from the community that were really uh, became even more active with that board. And then really looking at workforce development and the economic impact of, of the college on that county and in that really region of the state. And then that's where our philanthropy started. So like you said, I'm asking, why did those board members, right, who are, I'm sure, getting pulled in different directions and, and being solicited potentially in a variety of different causes, why did they buy in? Well, many of them were actually alums. So that institution was one of the early community colleges in the state of Texas. It was founded in 1926. So there were many, many, in particular women who didn't maybe go off to University of Texas right away. They did their first two years at Tyler. So we had a lot of uh, local individuals who had attended uh, Tyler, and then, you know, went off to their four-year institution somewhere else in the state later. So they had a connection both to us and to their four-year, but their commitment to the community into develop, into developing that workforce, their commitment to philanthropy in Tyler itself was super strong, a stronger than in, in many other communities. It's, it's really a, a unique uh, a unique town. So we have that opportunity. We have that little, you know, that foundation. And then through our development of alumni relations, we began to work with other alums in the area and, and all of that. So, and we, you know, East Texas is the, is the home to a lot of the um, oil and gas industry. And so some of our historic families and uh, community members uh, were very successful in that. And so they they really helped us and invested uh, in all of higher education in that community, not just Tyler Junior College, but also University of Texas at Tyler. And our that regional hospital system was a regional hub for healthcare. I mean, it's an amazing story and thank you for giving us a window. And I, I guess probably one of the main nuance there being 
um, off, I feel like oftentimes I'm hearing about the, the much younger community college where they're, you know, they're, they're growing really fast, but you had both the growth, but also a history that is somewhat unique within the two-year um, college category. Yes. And then that continued to evolve. You know, it just, it didn't just stagnate. I mean, you know, we were, we were the first uh, two-year institution in the state of Texas to begin to offer a promise program. I mean, those are all over the country now, but we, we, you know, with the help of an investor from the community and a a person who was the the owner and founder of a local bank took interest in uh, his community and began that first promise program. And and wow, it's been so incredibly successful. Uh, And then to see it spring up in, in so many different communities across the state, it's just incredible. Very cool. So uh, very strong Texas roots and Texas experiences. And at some point you had to look uh, across the border and uh, <laughs> consider a new opportunity. So tell me what led to the, the chancellor opportunity at LSU Eunice. Well, it was really interesting. I just felt like I love, I love higher education. I love I loved all the work I was doing in university advancement, but felt like, you know, hey, I, I think I can do more. I, I, you know, I'd like to try something else. And my daughter went off to college. She went off to Baylor University and I thought, well, this is my opportunity to, to maybe put my toe in the water and, and, and see what, you know, leadership is all about. And so this, this opportunity came available in Louisiana. I grew up in Longview, which is very close to, to Shreveport, spent a lot of time in, in the Shreveport area as well. Uh, but this was South Louisiana. So it was very, very different in a very rural community. Um, a lot of fun. I, I had just a wonderful time getting to know the people. The work ethic of the students was just absolutely incredible. Um, I can't tell you, we were sort of a feeder institution for the Baton Rouge campus. Uh, located about an hour and 15 minutes, um, you know, outside of Baton Rouge. And so a lot of our students uh, would come to us first. It was local. It was less expensive. You know, they could get that first two years in uh, at our institution, earn an associate degree, and then transfer right on into their program uh, at uh, Baton Rouge. We also had healthcare, So we had nursing and, and all of those allied health related fields as well. And so took those to some, to some uh, expanded those to some additional cities and we're in uh, uh, just outside of Eunice and Lafayette. And so I had a chance to grow that institution to about 3,200 students. When I started, we were at about 2,500. So I spent a lot of time, you know, I think university advancement work is a lot like enrollment management. A lot of similarities there. And so um, it took a lot of the tools that we use in advancement to, to recruit students and to really get the word out. And so I think that really helped us. Tell me more about that, because I'm really fascinated by the topic. I just interviewed uh, and, and pr- we just recorded yesterday, so it'll probably be released at a similar time as, as this conversation. Uh, a woman named Mo Cotton Kelly, who is the COO at the UConn Foundation, but she grew up in um, the enrollment world at Bowling Green State, which was her alma mater. And we were talking a lot about the similarities and differences between enrollment and advancement. And so when you talk about, like when you think about the the ingredients that led to that growth that you experienced, and it sounds like multiple instances in your career, what aspects do you think are most applicable to improving advancement outcomes as well? 
I think it's the relationship building and, and it's the outreach and, and the continuing relationship or the stewardship of those relationships. You know, much like we do in advancement with our donors and, and prospective donors, the same concepts really apply. You know, in, in at, at LSU, we utilize that in developing relationships with school districts, for example, and with, with school personnel, with counselors, with principals, with superintendents, and being out and being seen and talking to those individuals so that they understand what programs your, your institution offers and how, how can you partner. We created a, um, um, an early, early college academy right there on the Eunice campus for students who were from the surrounding high schools and maybe didn't have uh, adequate facilities or access to certain AP classes or access to, to STEM, you know, majors. And so we, we brought those students in, they matriculated with, with our own native students uh, and did amazingly well. So that, you know, at the end of two years, they could graduate from LSUE with a degree and also from their, their respective high school. So that was new, wow. it was kind of something different. They hadn't done that uh, too much in Louisiana with the two-year system, which was separate from uh, the LSU system. There were three, three, four systems. So, so essentially like co-packaging a high school diploma with an associate's degree or whatever the, the yes. wow. Very, yeah. very and that's done a lot in Texas. That's huge. Yeah. Uh, it's been around a long time, say 15, 20 years, but it, it's, it was something unique and that they didn't have. And so, uh, you know, we sort of put, put all those tools together and, uh, and offer that. And it's in, and, and, and we seem to grow. And when you think about that growth, a couple hundred, you know, incremental students per year, which is really material when you think about the kind of fixed costs that go into a university. Um, do you think those incremental students were, were, were you convincing them to go to LSU Eunice instead of somewhere else? Like, were you just competing better with other options or do you think it was more inspiring kids who otherwise would not have gone maybe anywhere to go? Do you even, do, do you know, are you able to know? You know, I think it was probably a little bit of both. I think it is inspiring some who probably didn't think they wanted to go. You know, I, higher education, you know, we're seeing across the country that about 60% of students are female, 60 and versus say 40% are, are, are male. In that particular region of the country, I would say 70% of the students were female. And, wow. and, and the reason is, is because of that, that oil and gas industry and the offshore work that occurs in, in that industry, uh, the male students, it was difficult to convince them to go and obtain a, a any kind, any sort of uh, post-secondary credential, right? Because they could immediately leave high school and have a well-paying job. The issue was, you know, it's, it's in in some cases it's it's dangerous work. It's it's you know uh, it's not sustainable later in life. And so, you know, to convince them to come to a place like you know LSUE that they could learn a trade, they could they could also do the first two years of a baccalaureate degree. Um, sometimes it was difficult. And so I think we just had to get that message out. And, and so we did. So we did attract some of those students and additional ones that we would have already naturally uh, had come to our institution. So, Well, I've never been to Eunice, but uh, longer, <laughs> longer time listeners of the Raise podcast might recall that for about 10 months during the pandemic, my family and I spent 
uh, we spent that time on the road in an RV with our three little kids traveling oh, up wow. the country. And we did spend one night in Brobridge, Louisiana at an alligator camp or something like that. <laughs> That's I don't know great. what the appropriate name was, but we got a little, a little bayou action, I guess, is, is what I would say on that trip. That's and super. Uh, the alligators did not disappoint, but um, <laughs> you had, you had that experience and then had the opportunity to uh, join Texas Women's University now almost coming up on five years, I guess this year will be five years, uh, and very different kind of mission and focus to what you have described so far on your journey, but similar in the sense that there is a really specific and I think differentiated mission and focus. And so tell me about um, what led to the opportunity. Did you know somebody there? Were you recruited? Did it just sort of happen? Um, and, and what ultimately inspired you to accept the opportunity? So I was recruited. Uh, it was through a, you know, a search firm. And I was really interested because there aren't too many opportunities in the Dallas, Dallas-Fort Worth region, right? At, at that level and thinking about, you know, uh, women in particular, women's education. And I had two degrees from University of North Texas. So I was very familiar with Denton. And as a student there, I used to study at Texas Women's University in their library. They had a beautiful facility and it was always very quiet and just a great setting. And I remembered that, you know, you know that experience. And so when I, that's what really piqued my interest, you know, in, in even looking and really had a wonderful uh, interview experience, got to meet, you know, a lot of faculty and staff and, and the chancellor, Corrine Faton, who's just been phenomenal to work with. Uh, and then the mission, you know, knowing that, that we are educating, you know, about 90% of our students are still uh, women and, and a diverse group of women. We are major, majority minority institution. We're a Hispanic serving institution. Uh, it's, it's just, uh, every day is a new day and it's just a wonderful experience. And, you know, we're providing social mobility for a, a group of people who, um, you know, sometimes struggle in larger settings or in, in, in larger institutions. And so we can provide that real one-on-one -on -one, uh, nurturing environment. And that's what makes it really special. No, it, I mean, it really must. And, and I'm curious, when you think about those stories, if there are specific examples that really stand out to you, but also how do you amplify that message to the donor community and, and is the donor community, the alumni community, or um, kind of what, what is the constituency there? But it, but it does seem like, uh, you know, you all must be sort of churning out those life-changing stories on a almost daily basis. Yes, it's it's really an incredible story. So the state of Texas really had foresight when they founded Texas Women's in 1901. In 2026, we'll celebrate our 125th anniversary. So it is it has been around a long time. And if you can imagine, you know, women who graduated back in the you know 40s or 50s or 60s, those classes of women. I mean, they're independent unbelievable uh, accomplishments, right? Uh, and many times in other communities and other states wouldn't have had an affordable opportunity to attend, you know, a four-year university or a four-year institution. So 
we do have some incredible stories. And that journey just really has continued throughout uh, as we've grown and expanded in other fields. You know, many of our, our graduates go on into our, healthcare is probably our number one field with nursing and, and occupational therapy, physical therapy, all of that through the PhD level. And it's just incredible um, the number of women that come out of these programs. And I mean, it, it's not life-changing just for them. It's life-changing for their families, for their children and their grandchildren. Um, so it's amazing. I, it's, it's, it's wonderful work. I'm excited to do it and uh, have had some, some great success already. So we're really excited about the future here. And when you think about that success to date, what lessons learned, what's applicable, what's maybe really specific to the opportunity. I mean, for other folks listening, what are one or two ideas that maybe have been effective for you that could be borrowed? Well, when you think about our student population, um, planned giving plays a much more, much more significant role or a, a major role, I suppose, in the whole mix of, of fundraising. We have so many women who, uh, one, have either outlived a spouse or maybe have not had children, they've, they've had a career. And so they're looking for a place to pay it forward, to return um, that investment. And, you know, it's interesting that nearly 70% of our donors are our alumni. Uh, so we have a very strong affinity for the university and they wanna give back and they wanna invest in the future and in the future of uh, women's education. I think it's, you know, that important. So that's what's different, I think, um, about an institution like ours. And so when you when you reflect on the last four or five years, are there any specific donor stories that stand out or, you know, maybe planned gifts that are inspired that, um, you know, very well could have not happened if the right oh, for kind sure. of, yeah, I mean, just tell me about some that maybe stand out because I'm sure part of it is also building momentum and, and showing the team how much more potential there is. And then, you know, trying to repeat over and over what really works. Right. So I think one, one great story, and this is true for any institution, not just, you know, a women focused institution, but the, the relationships that our faculty or our deans or leadership, you know, academic leadership uh, have with people that they work with in research or uh, at conferences or colleagues that they, they co-author papers with, for example, can lead to gifts, can lead to further partnerships and relationships with the university. And one such thing happened uh, back in 2016 with a, a man by the name of Dr. Richard Woodcock. Dr. Woodcock had a long time relationship with a psychologist psych, psych, psychology professor here, Dr. Dan Miller. Uh, they co-published many, many, many times. And Dr. Woodcock developed a relationship uh, with this faculty member and decided that Texas Women's was gonna be the home for the, for the Woodcock Institute for, for neurocognitive uh, research. Dr. Woodcock invented, or was it, yeah, was co-inventor of the Woodcock-Johnson uh, cognitive test for psychological um, abilities, intellectual abilities. Um, <laughs> he is, he's just an unbelievable giant in the field of psychological testing and decided 
you know, that Texas Women's University was a place where he would like to have his institute. And so over time, uh, since then, and through some great partnerships with his foundation and with, with his uh, gifting of royalties and uh, intellectual property rights, uh, he's made over a $25 million investment in the last, you know, less than eight years uh, with his affiliation with the university. So, you know, I think it's just a reminder that, you know, whatever relationships your faculty may have with, you know, colleagues or others, it, it could, you know, it could certainly lead to something as transformational as, as a gift like this was for Texas women's. And then, and tell me more about within that uh, 70% donor base that comes from the alumni community, how are you surfacing the planned gifts? I mean, are there strategies or tactics or like, what is the process to do that? Because my, my understanding is that oftentimes it can be that sort of consistent, maybe relatively modest supporter that until they're really asked, you know, maybe never even thought about including, you know, your institution in, in their estate plan, for example. And so how do you kind of, but at the same time, it's, it's hard to go be really personalized with every hundred dollar donor. And, you know, we're working on ways to improve that, but how, how do you we kind are. of, exactly. <laughs> So, you know, right now, obviously, that's that's a lot of work that our frontline fundraisers do is is we do a lot of qualifying this institution, although it has a very long history, it doesn't have a a long and strong history of philanthropic support, uh, in particular from its alumni base. So we have spent a lot of time in the last four or five years developing relationships and and re-engaging our alumni base. And I think that's really important. And then when they begin to hear stories of one another as they make investments into the institution, uh, it does inspire, it, it does inspire others to come forward and say, hey, I think I can do that. I think I can also be a part of society or, or you know, whatever. Um, so, you know, I think continuing the stewardship and continuing to tell the stories uh, does, does inspire change, especially with our, with our alumni, for sure. Love it. And yeah, and one of our, our one of our largest single gifts to the institution occurred in 2018, and it was from an alum. Her name is Mary Stanton. She uh, obtained a, a, a business degree from Texas Women's University. She and her husband uh, did very well in uh, as as entrepreneurs, and you know she made a 10 million dollar gift, an investment, you know, into the future of the university and it went directly into to student, a student life arena. She really wanted to see students living and learning on the campus uh, in, in state-of-the-art facilities. And so she named uh, a brand new 865 bed residential complex uh, here on the Denton campus. And, uh, and that's made a difference and it's inspired others, certainly. Love that. Um, yeah. Where are you kind of in the context of the organization, is there uh, a campaign happening or, you know, there's usually one either being <laughs> or missed or just finished or being planned. So I don't know what's, what's the state of affairs there. Yes. So we are in the midst of a quiet, of the quiet phase of the campaign. 
We do intend to launch publicly this fall, so that will be exciting. Uh, in celebration, of course, of our 125th anniversary in 2026. So, and so what's the vision for that? Whatever you're able to share kind of publicly at this point, kind of what are the, the primary objectives? You know, you know, I'm sure there's a dollar goal, but maybe even beyond that. if, if, if Right. Uh, so our dollar goal is 125 million. It will be the first comprehensive campaign uh, that we've we've had. Wow. We have a couple of uh, capital projects. One is a new nursing and health sciences facility for the Denton campus. It's a hundred million dollar project. That's it's a kind of public private that part, partly the state funds. And then uh, we have private gifts that will come in and help, but also really attracting and retaining uh, talented faculty. I think that's so, so important for institutions like ours. We're comprehensive, we're regional. Uh, so the strength of our programs are really in our faculty. And so naming, naming endowments like professorships, chairs, deanships, uh, our campuses, we were just named two years ago at the last legislative session in Texas. We, we are now the Texas Women's University system. We're the seventh system in the state of Texas. And so in the next five years, our campuses in Dallas and Houston will become independent. Uh, they, they, those are health science centers serving the healthcare communities in, in both of those medical districts, one near UT Southwestern in Dallas and the other in Houston, right in the heart of the medical center. In fact, we share a parking garage with the Houston Methodist Hospital. Do you have peers or kind of friends who sit in advancement leadership roles that you're able to collaborate with or, or who are kind of some of, I don't know, other folks that you turn to for advice formally and informally? <laughs> we, I have a lot of peers, especially uh, in Texas. Yeah. Certainly, certainly people I've worked with in the past, you know, former presidents of, of the colleges, at, especially at Tyler, like I said, Dr. Bill Crow, uh, Dr. Juan Mejia, who is now the president there. Um, others who have been in the profession a long time in advancement. Uh, one comes to mind is Sue Kubik, who worked for Northampton Community College uh, in Pennsylvania and was just a really wonderful mentor to me when I first started in the profession. Mm -hmm. She has since retired. Um, her husband also has retired from higher education, but just outstanding individual and, and really helped uh, with my relationships in, in, in case actually. Got it. Um, tell me about your team. What's going on as you, you know, ramp for this one twenty fifth sort of moment. Um, are there open positions? Like what, what should people yes. know about? Yeah. <laughs> we do have some open positions and, you know, if you are interested in, in, and are passionate about higher education and about, furthering women's education in particular and for diverse women, this is the place for you. We have an innovative team. We have uh, a lot of excitement happening right now. Our chancellor's just been on fire lately, uh, doing all kinds of regional events with our alumni and really seeing the level of engagement um, on a really upward traje trajectory. So we're excited, love to have, uh, new talent on the team. We have frontline fundraiser positions, director, senior director level positions in the colleges and also in major gifts. And then we'll be uh, hiring some donor experience officers very soon. There we go. All right. Love to hear that. <laughs> um, tell me, tell me about the partnership with your chancellor. When you say the chancellor's on fire, that's pretty, that's a pretty cool yeah. uh, description. I mean, how do you, how do you really make the most of that relationship? And, and I'm sure, you know, ideally every donor would like to 
meet one-on-one with the chancellor and that's not viable. So how, how do you most strategically partner to maximize the impact given the, you know, all the other things on, on a chancellor's to-do list? Yeah, I think we, we do a really good job of trying to manage her schedule in terms of who she needs to see and when, in fact, we recently, um, um, hired a new, a new individual who's taken over as, uh, sort of a, her ambassador uh, for chancellor's leadership giving. So he really helps um, manage her schedule and and really focuses his portfolio on her major gifts and initiatives. And so that's really really helped me uh, as we move forward with this this new structure and moving into into the public phase of the campaign. Um, and it's been it's been a great addition so far. We, in, you know, this has just been a, a few months, but really excited about it moving forward. Certainly, but she's been great. She she has an open door. In fact, her door is probably too open. <laughs> um, and so our our constituents really expect to 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 have a lot of FaceTime with her. And so it's really trying to manage manage all of that so we can be realistic, right? Can I ask? how much of that we're recording this in late February of 2023. And one of the really interesting kind of dynamics that we saw over the last few years was um, how the pandemic was a forcing function to get better at digital engagement and digital communication in general. And we heard of a lot of neat instances where chancellors who in the past, you might've had to work for a month to get on their schedule to get them you know, on the plane to go to the thing, to meet the person. And it was really complicated. We're able to just like pop on a quick zoom call, be really personalized, have a nice chat, but you know, 25 minutes in and out versus two days. Now we're now seeing like every airline having, you know, record bookings and every hotel being at capacity because we're in this sort of travel surge that is happening right now. And some of that is happening for sure. And in the world of advancement after you know, less of that during a period, like where do you find things settling out um, for your chancellor or even for yourself? I mean, is it basically back to the way that it was before or does it feel like things are different um, now? Uh, things are certainly different. Okay. I, you know, I don't expect anything to be the same as it was okay. you know, pre-pandemic, certainly. Um, you know, obviously everyone had to learn all the tools, um, yeah. you know, for, for Zoom and, and all, of, all of these virtual meetings. And that continues. I, you know, I, I think in, in terms of introductory meetings, in terms of, uh, like you said, schedules. So, so I, I think what it has done, it, is, it has created a, even a busier schedule, in fact, because yeah. we're doing a lot of both every single day. So I would say I spend my days half the time in virtual meetings and the other half the time one-on-one in personal, uh, either in you know a one-on-one individual meeting. Yeah. So I'm finding I'm finding my days are longer. You know, yeah. during the pandemic they would run into eight nine o'clock at night and and I I don't see I don't see that changing for a while. It's 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 just yeah it's it's, it's a lot, but it is it it is. Um, I think it's, I think it's more productive. Yeah, I, I, I agree completely. And I, and I think the, I think the kind of half and half is, is probably a pretty good 
way to rebalance. You know, I think that that there's just um, so much that is so, so much more efficient in this manner um, that isn't quite as fun as, you know, or quite as fulfilling as the 100% in person, but it gets you 80% of the way there with, you know, 2% of the effort. Um, and then obviously you've got to be strategic about when it really makes sense to get in the car or on the train or in the plane. And, uh, and I just see that especially within that chancellor or the dean type level where the difference between like getting them scheduled versus can you pop into the zoom for 15 minutes it's pretty it's pretty amazing how much simpler and frictionless it can be um but i did i do worry still that maybe as time passes um maybe the pre-pandemic habits or strategies or tactics come back stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, but it sounds like you all are finding a nice balance. Yeah. And I, you know, for us, it's just, it's just so convenient because we have three campuses and we're spread out so, so, uh, so far geographically, you know, we're in Denton and Dallas and Houston. And so, you know, it's just, it's just been, it's just been so much uh, easier, more efficient, I guess. Uh, the input, you can't beat the in-person. I mean, there's no, there's no question. No, you can't, you just can't do that much of it. So it's, that is the trade-off. Yeah. 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 Um, very cool. And the other thing that struck me and, and, you know, you can, you can speak to it a little bit. It sounds like there's a lot of momentum around this, but just the, there's so much pressure around the ROI of higher education. And it seems like you all have just an incredible story of how income production changes and, and, and you've already hinted at the, the demographics of the student population, but it just sounds really, really exciting. It is, it is. Yeah. Um, okay, well, if folks want to get in touch with you, I know you're uh, active on LinkedIn, that's usually the best way, but any other recommendations? No, that sounds great, just let me know. All right. Well, I would encourage everybody to reach out to Kimberly She's, uh, on LinkedIn active. We're going to get you connected uh, to your counterpart over there at North Texas and make sure he knows that uh, it was a, a, a classroom uh, coincidence that sort of launched your whole story here, which is super <laughs> cool. And wish you all the absolute best as you continue to wrap, uh, ramp for the 125th and appreciate your willingness to share your, your journey with our audience. Well, thank you. I appreciate it, Brent. Thanks, Kimberly. Have a great weekend. Take care. Okay, you too. Bye. Bye.